and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Dr. Seema Yasmin is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, poet, medical doctor, and author. Serving as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, she investigated disease outbreaks as principal investigator on a number of studies. Dr. Yasmin trained in journalism at the University of Toronto and in medicine at the University of Cambridge. Yasmin was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Breaking News in 2017 with the team from the Dallas Morning News and recipient of an Emmy for a reporting on neglected diseases. In 2017, Yasmin was a John S. Knight Fellow in Journalism at Stanford University, investigating the spread of health misinformation and disinformation during epidemics. Previously, she was a science correspondent at the Dallas Morning News, medical analyst for CNN, and professor of public health at the University of Texas at Dallas. Her writing has earned awards and residencies from the Mid-Atlantic Arts Council, Hedgebrook, the Malay Colony for the Arts, and others. Her first book, The Impatient Dr. Langay, is a biography of an AIDS doctor killed on the Malaysia Airlines Flight 17. Her second book, Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them, was published in November of 2019. And her third and most recent book, Muslim Women Are Everything, was just released in November of 2020 and is a collection of riveting, inspiring, and stereotype-shattering stories that reveal the beauty, diversity, and strength of Muslim women, both past and present. The book was deemed as the winner of the 2020 Best Book Awards and Women's Issues. Yasmin's unique expertise in medicine, epidemics, and journalism has been called upon by the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues the Aspen Institute, Skoll Foundation, and others. Thank you so much, Dr. Yasmin, for joining us today. Your career has been so compelling to follow over the years, and we look forward to hearing more about your insights and learnings throughout your journey. Given the many careers you've had within medicine and journalism, what would you say is your personal mission or goal within your work? To make people empowered to make good decisions for themselves about health and science. So really just to make sure that information equity, access to health information is as diligently thought about as we think about other disparities in care, like access to healthcare. I, for a long time before the pandemic, was working on this issue of the spread of health misinformation and disinformation. And it was hard at times to get buy-in and sometimes did not get buy-in from health institutions that just didn't think that the issue of poor access to health information or that the spread of falsehoods about health and science was actually a threat to public health. So my biggest missions are to make healthcare workers and scientists really effective and compelling and brilliant communicators for us all to consider communication as a core competency and one that's as important as being able to do a spinal tap or conduct a case control study. And then for the public, it's really my mission is to make sure that people have access to the right information for them. 
During the pandemic, you've really emerged as one of the most trusted public health experts and voices on CNN, as well as Twitter and social media platforms. What do you think has contributed to that success and having that communication with the general public? Oh, gosh, I don't even know. I don't consider myself to be that successful at that. I feel like there's still so much work to do. And in fact, yesterday I logged onto Twitter in the evening and a woman scientist was lamenting the spread of falsehoods about an infectious disease from someone. And she didn't say who it was, but the responses to it was everybody knew who she was talking about, which scientist this was that was saying these really false and controversial things. And it made me think, wow, the fact that we all knew exactly who she was talking about shows that there are people out there who are really, really effective, as she was highlighting, in spreading falsehoods. And there's a lot of work to be done in countering that. But in terms of my work, and I've been at it for a long time, so I'm really relieved now that there's a focus on health misinformation and disinformation that we realize communication is important that when you're hit with a pandemic it's not just a pandemic but it's also a concurrent misinfodemic like these words are now in our lexicon I hope that we continue that work but I've certainly been studying this since like 2015 aware that this is an issue people before me have been studying it for an even longer amount of time but I guess I'm trying to succeed I'm trying to do lots of training and education for scientists and, and healthcare workers who also want to up their communication game. But it's been hard as a woman and as a woman of color to sometimes amplify your voice. And you see the same few people sometimes, usually men, who kind of suck all the oxygen out of the room and use their platforms to first to not pass the mic and share space, but then just to promote their agenda. And as we've seen a lot on Twitter, there's a mix of what they spread in terms of being prominent scientists who share accurate information and then also share really misleading information. I think that's incredibly confusing for the public in terms of knowing who to trust and who not to trust. What would your message be to young women who are trying to build their own brand or communicate some degree of information to a public body or really make a name for themselves in the public eye, what would your message be amidst this scrutiny and criticism and holding of the mic by others? Yeah, a really simple, know what your mission is and know your audience. And the audience might vary from month to month or year to year, but know who you are hoping to reach and be clear about why you are trying to reach them and what kind of service you're hoping to provide for people. That would be my advice. Great. And along the lines of misinformation, I've seen that one of your more recent works, Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them, has really spurred a lot of discussion regarding health information and misinformation. What would your message be to physicians and other medical providers in being able to have a role in combating misinformation in healthcare specifically? Be aware that it's a problem. Don't think that these are just fringe movements such as the anti-vaccine movement because it's easy to think they're a small group and they are as powerful as they might be. There are broader issues at play in terms of building trust with communities, with countering falsehoods and just misleading information out there. So be very aware that this is a threat to public health. And then take communications training seriously. A lot of us were either bypassed that in our medical school training or 
it was taught in a way that was really boring and very much learning by rote how to break bad news, that kind of stuff. So yeah, know that it's core to what we do. Know that the way that we package information has to be different for different audiences and know that it always starts with the audience and not with us. So yes, there are things you want to share, but you have to first start off by understanding what are the informational needs of the audience that you're hoping to connect with and go from there. Yeah, I think the point you raised about building trust, you know, a lot of issues within healthcare stem from a lot of past experiences with the anti-vaccine movements and regarding particularly minority populations and their general skepticism not to generalize of medical care is really complicating and, and making this field more murky in terms of getting the vaccine to as many people as possible. And I think all the more reason for medical analysts and medical experts to really step up to the plate in terms of being on CNN, writing actively. And I think that's just so, so important. Yeah, if that's what feels right to you. Right. I have friends who would hate the idea of being what some people call a public intellectual. That's not their right. preferred mode of engagement. So it is really just deciding what is right for you, figuring out what kind of opportunities are out there and then figuring out ways to connect with people that you care about. Agreed. What is your take on censorship of information? We've seen a bit of censorship that's occurred with public officials, the recent administration, but as far as really mitigating misinformation in healthcare, what do you think the role is of social media platforms? Well, I think previously in your question, you were saying about historical legacies or things that have happened in the past, but it's very much an issue of today. So even thinking about historical legacies that give communities legitimate reason to distrust doctors and distrust the scientific establishment, for example, we're talking more about the Tuskegee studies of untreated right. syphilis and the Negro male that happened between 1932 and 72, which is very important to discuss. And I think sometimes we forget in our field that if you haven't done like IRB training or other ethics training, there are loads of people out there who may not be aware of these history of unethical, egregious experimentation on poor people, black people queer people, Jewish people, vulnerable communities overall, but it still happens now, right? We still see medical racism happening very much now. So not only have we not acknowledged or atoned for past sins, but we continue to perpetuate that. And I'm sure everyone listening would be aware of the study that was in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2016 or 2017, I'm forgetting, but the study out of uh, the University of Virginia, where medical students and residents who were white were asked these questions about black people and they held magical beliefs about black people's skin and hearing and fertility, just absolute nonsense. And these are people who have a quote unquote higher education in biology and in medicine. So we still see, we see all the time these higher maternal mortality rates among black women, significantly higher, higher infant mortality rates amongst black babies, black people's pain going underdiagnosed and undertreated and we've seen horrible, horrible stories of black physicians dying of COVID while they're recording on social media how they feel like they're not being given adequate medical treatment. So I raise that only to say that we haven't done what we need to do, which is kind of wash our dirty laundry in public and say, look, this is a role that medicine has played in, in reinforcing white supremacy. But then we also need to talk about what we're still doing now, like still teaching race as a biological traits in medical school and not teaching race as a social construct and race is made up, racism is very real. Like those conversations aren't happening enough. I only know of a few university hospitals in the US that have stopped changing estimated glomerular filtration rates for black patients, knowing that 
that's not actually accurate. So we need to atone for the past and think about how that plays into the present. Think about how, yes, some communities of color are hesitant to get COVID vaccines. Some are very much desperate to get vaccinated. And there are all sorts of issues around access to vaccines as we're seeing just the same patterns over and over again. Totally agree. I think it's a very complicated issue. And there is a very unique role of medical education in not only teaching communication, but also these you know, more social aspects and historical aspects of medicine that continue to affect general medical care beyond the biology. Yeah. Then we're aware of these things, but then we'll put the onus on those communities. Like, you should trust us. Why don't right. you sign up for clinical trials? Why don't you turn up for to get vaccinated when we're actually not putting vaccination centers in the predominantly Black or Latinx neighborhoods very much? Or we're not doing our part to say, yep, we have done these things in the past. Or you know, even if we haven't done them, we're part of a system and a profession that has legitimized unethical experimentation and non-consensual experimentation. And here's how we might prevent that from reoccurring. I'd like to shift the conversation to your book, Muslim Women Are Everything. Tell us about your inspiration for the book. The book started off not as a book and as an angry tweet that I sent out in 2017. I was just really frustrated at the time that even when big institutions or big organizations were celebrating Muslim women publicly, the tone and the language, the syntax, but they were really telling on themselves that they were celebrating these Muslim women supposedly, but they were actually surprised that Muslim women were achieving certain things. So whether it was a Muslim women Olympian winning a medal or a Muslim woman signing a deal to be a supermodel, whatever it was, it was like, wow, look at these Muslim women. And I was like, seriously, what do you think we do? The tweet is in the beginning of the book. I tweeted something like, yeah, we can kickbox, code, eat salad, you know. <laughs> yes, Muslim women do things. And then after that tweet, an editor reached out and said, can you turn that into an essay, a column? And I said, no, because <laughs> I'm just like, I'm not going to write one of those. We are just like you. We bleed the same as you kind of pieces. But I didn't want to completely say no. So I went back to him and said, I don't want to write that piece, but I want to write something. And he gave me a lot of leeway. And I ended up writing a kind of prose poem, a kind of FU poem, if you like that was called Yes, Muslim Women Do Things. And it was illustrated by a brilliant painter, Fahmida Azim. And what I wrote and what she illustrated was a series of vignettes of fictional Muslim women doing amazing things. Muslim women reading a book, a Muslim woman taking a nap, a Muslim woman riding a motorbike, a Muslim woman doing cardiothoracic surgery, like all of the things that we do. We are lazy, we are ambitious, we are brilliant, we are not so brilliant all of the above. And then publishers got interested because that piece did really well and got a lot of attention. And so then it became a book that is not about fictional women. It's about real life Muslim women from around the world and across time. So mostly modern and living women, but also some historical figures too. And it's everything for like 10 year old ballerinas in Australia to Senegalese authors who wrote their first novels at age 50. A diversity of age is important to me as well. It's got Malala Yusuf in it, who many will know. And then it's got other amazing women living their best lives, race car drivers, poets, bakers, and entrepreneurs, and millionaires, and women who've gone to space and taken the Quran with them and managed to buy their own ticket into space. So it's really about saying the danger of a single story, that thing. There are women in there who 
I don't necessarily agree with their politics. There's one woman who's a military strategist and I'm quite a peace loving person, but hey, that's what it is to be a Muslim woman. You can be all of those things. And certainly there are Muslim women within the book who may not like each other or agree with each other, but it was important for me to have real diversity in there of age, of ethnicity, of geography, of profession. And also there are Sunni Muslims, which is how I was raised. There are Shias and Ahmadis. And that was very important to me as well to show. There's not just one way of being a Muslim woman. We're not a monolith. There are literally millions of us. That's super exciting. And I really look forward to reading this and looking through all these inspirational stories of just amazing women. What would your message be to men or those of other gender identities and supporting women in their professional lives and goals? It's been really nice to hear that people have bought the book for themselves and been like, hey, my brother wouldn't stop reading it or my son stole it. Because it's important for all of us to see these stories and Muslim women, everything is beautifully illustrated. So it's a nice way to get into the book. But my message is being an ally can often be quite performative. I don't even like that word anymore. So show up the best way that you can. And sometimes that means showing up and passing the mic and making space and silence for, for women to speak and for others to speak. But yeah, I think men have a lot of work to do in helping dismantle the patriarchy. And I think it's happening as men realize that actually the patriarchy is kind of bad for everyone. It might serve a few who are in power, but the patriarchy sucks for many men. It doesn't let men be their full selves. So it hurts many of us and is not really our best way of being. Thank you, Dr. Yasmin, for spending the time with us today. We're so grateful to have you on and hope to cross paths in the future. But one last question that I have is what would be a key piece of advice uh, that you would have for our listeners who are hoping to break into this world of scientific innovation, whether a company founder, whether a journalist, whether as a physician moving forward? I would say don't be discouraged because especially if you're a woman, especially if you're non-binary, especially if you're not gender conforming and you're a person of color, you will get told no over and over again. And it can be discouraging. I was told when I was in high school that I would never get into medical school, so I shouldn't bother applying. And I believed that and I didn't apply straight away. I was told a couple of years ago when I was making a pilot for a TV show about pandemics, this is before the pandemic, that I was amazing that large networks said that a TV show about science could not be hosted by a woman. I was told I couldn't narrate my the audiobook version of The Impatient Dr. Langer because it was a science book and they didn't want a woman narrating a book about a male scientist, even though I had written the book. So you just get told no over and over again. And sometimes very explicitly, you get told you're great, but no, because you are a woman. No, you can't host this show. No, you can't narrate this audiobook because because you have the wrong sex chromosomes. I don't know, like it's ridiculous. So my mom, you know, prepared me well for that. As a kid, she would say to me, it's going to be 10 times harder for you to achieve than for other people. And so I took that to heart and have been a fighter, but it's exhausting sometimes. So don't let the nose get you down. Don't be discouraged. And from early on, curate your most amazing support network who you give back to, but who really are there for you when the world is trying to crush you and, and tell you no, because you can persevere, but not without community, not without a support network. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare 
on Twitter at ThiaHC and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park and Asim Jain. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.